Hey, as you downloaded, you may have recognized that this is a very long episode. We end the episode in our usual time frame of under a half hour, but the conversation kept going and we decided to hit record. So we are giving you bonus content in the episode. So if you're committed to only listening to a half hour conversation, you can stop at the first bye-bye. But if you're interested, you can hear where we talked after the recording. We thought you might like that. Thanks so much. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another podcast episode. My name is Kalev Bendor, and I am very pleased to be joined by two of my colleagues, Mike Unterberg. What up? And Matthew Lippmann. Good afternoon. How are you both? I'm very well, thank you. I'm all right, thanks. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. And today we are going to be discussing, once again, a significantly important topic, and that is the future of the diaspora. Does it have a future? What should Israel's role be in that future? Uh, And I think, before we ask our two guests to speak, I think there's a couple of different models that we could potentially use in early Zionism, again, Zionism was was kind of established, if you like, on the basis that the diaspora was ultimately going to disappear. And we had to negate the diaspora because what the diaspora created was this kind of weak, cowardly Jew. And what needed to be created was, was a kind of new Hebrew. That was kind of early Zionism. And it was all about negating the diaspora. There's even a term for it. Shlilat yeah. exactly. And but there's also an, another model. And if we look at how the Jewish people live at the moment. Obviously, there are Jews in in England and in France and in Argentina and in Russia, etc. But the, the main two centers are now in Israel and in America. Uh, and some people kind of posit the model of kind of the Talmudic era, Yerushalayim and Babel and Babylon, both of which were centers of learning, both of which were centers of of life and and, and culture and knowledge and peoplehood, etc. And Based on on that model, they're they're two both kind of important, legitimate places that need to be supported and encouraged. So I think those are two interesting models with which to think about what's going going on. On the one hand, this negation of the diaspora, Shliatagalut. On the other hand, a more Talmudic model of two important, legitimate places. And uh, Mike, will you start please, with your uh, with your argument for us. Well, sure. So I, I do think that those models are both compelling. I think I am going to be taking the position of the early Zionists of Shlilata Galut, that, that, that the exile is, to, to use the Jabotinsky pithy quote, end the diaspora before the diaspora ends you. I will say that the model you gave for Matt's side, which is that you can have two centers, is a funny model in the sense that it didn't work. That in the early Talmudic era, you had a Jerusalem and Babel where, where Jerusalem was ascendant and the Babylonian, today Iraqi, community sort of was there. Uh, but eventually uh, the scales shifted. And as the community, as, as oppression under the Roman slash Byzantines made life in Israel less livable for Jews, they weren't able to maintain that level of power and organization and it shifted really, to the center. And the entire Jewish people, anywhere they were in the world, were essentially led by a, an exilarch, the head of the exile, and a gaon, a, a rabbinic head of the entire Jewish world, run out of Iraq. And eventually that too 
fell apart as the Jewish world spread further and further. They were unable to maintain that sort of central position. And part of what I'm arguing is that history of the Jews is going to look in the future more and more like a pendulum swing backwards, and that what we watched happen through the through the millennium of diaspora is now undoing. And so we've gone from multi-center to now two-center, and eventually that has to inevitably shift to one center. I, I acknowledge that in Israel, in Zionist circles, in Israeli organizations reaching out and communicating with the diaspora, that attitude of negation of the of the diaspora has left the conversation to a very large extent. I think part of it is practical. I think part of it is diplomatic. It's rude to tell people that their hard work that they're doing, ultimately for naught, that you're putting all this effort and energy and 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 hope and and work into something that in the end uh, will fall apart. So I understand the diplomatic reason, and, and I think that's important to not be rude to people. But when I look at why the early Zionists made their diagnosis, to, to I guess oversimplify it, basically what kept the Jews together through thousands of years was a balance of two factors. One is everyone outside them didn't accept them. And so their othering kept them united. But what kept their identity authentically Jewish was a absolute unquestioning, to a certain extent, commitment to, on a communal level, Jewish culture, practices, rituals, holidays, foods, et cetera, et cetera, in a way that was not only, obviously individuals weren't perfect and that you know they had Yom Kippur in those days people violated but but on a communal level the Jews maintained their culture right the old Zionist trope that more than the Jews maintained Chada'am said more than the Jews maintained Shabbat Shabbat maintained the Jews and what Chada'am was observing was that in the modern world in the secularizing modern world where observance where roughly depending on where you live you know in Israel it's arguably 20% consider themselves to be ritually observant. Another, what, 40-something percent consider themselves to be traditional. And, and, and But in the exile, it's roughly 10% consider themselves strictly observant. And then you have diminishing numbers by the decades of, of people who consider themselves to be traditionally practicing. And so Akharam said, it's just not going to work. Like in this modern world, let's be honest, because the, the 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 free world is accepting of us to a certain degree, and we're able to function without our communal uh, consistency in behavior and practice, we are going to assimilate. And to the extent that communities don't accept us, then the anti-Semitism will well, it will it will be oppressive to the point that Jews have to either assimilate or be eliminated or leave. And so what people like Acharam or Pinsker or Herzl or anyone in those early Zionist years was arguing was there aren't two valid strategies to build a successful Jewish future. There's one. You ultimately saying that if I can find a tolerant society, I can build a a a, a set of Jewish communities that can create a strong base for a Jewish future. The early Zionists argued that's not going to work, and that what you ultimately have is the state solution. Uh, I don't know that any of the evidence they used in making their diagnosis looks any better today. In fact, it may look worse, and we may have harder data to rely on to show that their diagnosis 
is still accurate, that the evidence over the last century shows, if anything, that they were more and more right. And so my model I'm proposing for this debate is look at the diaspora as a sinking, slowly sinking ship, and it should be the job of Israel to help and support and get as many people to shore as possible before that ship sinks. But ultimately, 500 years from now, uh, a student learning Jewish history will learn about the history of Jewish America the same way they learn about the history of Jewish Spain or the history of Jewish Germany. It's going to come to an end at some point. Not necessarily through the same ending, but it will be a historical thing to learn about. It won't be something in, a, you know, 300, 500 years, people, there won't be a Jewish community in the diaspora. So my eyebrows are just basically near my almost non-existent hairline, mm -hmm. uh, which is why I think Mike felt the need to clarify that yeah. uh, Spain and Germany is not necessarily the, the same model as America. Okay, so that was super interesting, and we'll definitely come back to yeah. uh, s several components of that. Matthew. Wow, okay. Mike, you presented a very compelling uh, argument, and there were certainly elements in there which I identify with, and, and I agree with you. I think... Some of the things we have to think about, though, in the context of this conversation is firstly, obviously, the world is totally different to when the early Zionists, even the later early Zionists, if you like, were, were writing and were thinking. And some of the factors that you described, yeah, are relevant today for sure. But some of the other factors have changed in terms of the way the Jewish community is viewed from without and also the way the Jewish community from within has changed significantly and how the Jewish community views itself uh, has changed in many ways, I would say. And just thinking about my experiences as someone who grew up in a diaspora country, which is not what you had considered to be one of the uh, two centers that you described of Babel and, and Jerusalem, the people in England consider themselves, and, and today I'm, I still have family living in England and, uh, and a lot of friends in England, and they consider themselves to have a thriving Jewish community. Is it a Jewish community that I would want to be a part of? No, I'm here. There's a reason that I made Aliyah, but there's certainly elements of that Jewish community which have given positive things to, to 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 the world very much so both to England as a itself and to also to Jury in Israel. For example, almost every week when one of the native sabras gives a Devatara and Ashul, they inevitably start quoting Rabbi Sachs, for example. So there's clearly value to the Judaism that's being taught and learned in the diaspora. You think about some of the advances, for example, in the women have made in Torah study and Torah learning some of the other like technological advances that the Jewish community benefited from, they came from America's social Just like culture. Spain. Spain contributed a tremendous amount. Yeah, sure. Spain-Jewish um, community. So I, I would say that for now, it's still strong. What's interesting is to think where that's going to go. And, and, and you described it, that it's you felt that it's going to become a historical, uh, historical event. I think also, without wishing to get into too much semantics, the question comes that how do you define Jewish culture? Right, Because you were talking about observance. And I, I assume that you weren't talking about observance just of halacha, but like of Jewish culture as well. There's halachic observance. I'm, I'm only talking about Jews with a self-identity as Jewish. Okay. And that could be any, right? That could mm -hmm. um, span a spectrum of Jewish ritual and observances. And I think, with, again, without wishing to get into semantics, the question becomes is how do we define Jewish culture? And this is like a really interesting conversation I like to have with my students when we talk about Jews as being a national group with their land and the language and the culture. We get into that conversation. What is Jewish culture? And the example I like to give them, and I'd be interested to hear from the from the panel here, is one of the examples I give them is that last year, before the Chagim, you may remember this, there was a Twitter storm because a Jewish young professional organization in Washington, D.C. called Gather D.C. published their uh, program for the High Holy Days for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. And one of the events 
that they were advertising was there was going to be a communal luncheon on Yom Kippur. And at that intentional eating, they described it, there was going to be reflection. The rabbi of the group was going to attend. They were going to have a reflection about what they'd done not so well during the year, how they could improve in the year to come. And I always ask my students, okay, guys, is that Jewish culture? And there's always like this sort of stunned silence. And then they get into the debate. And some of them would say, absolutely, it's Jewish culture because they're taking the chance for reflection and they're taking the chance to, to think about how to go forward. And others look at it and say, well, the halacha says, blah, blah, blah. And they'll say, okay, get off the halacha uh, stool. Jewish law. The Jewish law. Get, get away from Jewish law for a second. Is that Jewish culture? And then they have to think, well, does it, you could argue it incorporates elements of Jewish culture for sure. And others would say, yeah, but it's not Jewish tradition. So then we get to this, this conversation about well, where does tradition change or end or, or how do you modify it? And, and I would make the claim that the Jewish culture in the diaspora is still sufficiently strong, whether you consider that culture or not, we can, we can have that conversation, but that the Jewish culture in the, in the diaspora, especially in America, England, places like that, is still sufficiently strong to keep it sustainable. Now, you might argue about numbers, right? So, of course, as we know, the number of Jews who identify as Jewish has gone down significantly, as you mentioned yourself. But I wonder if there's a certain critical mass where either it can't go any lower, I don't know, I'm not a, I'm not a prophet, or if at a certain point, and I think the communities are making a move towards this to say, okay, this is really bad and we have to invest more. And we're not just talking about investing more financially, but we're investing more effort, more time. We're giving more of our resources, again, not just financial resources, but, but what we recognize we're in a, re you called it a sinking ship before, mm -hmm. um, that they're recognizing that this ship is sinking and they're looking for every single hole they can to plug, which is different from here are the lifeboats, right? So I guess it depends how you see it. But um, my experience, and, and I go every summer so far, this will be my fourth summer going to a summer camp, uh, a Jewish summer camp in uh, in the United States. They're really looking for, to try and plug those holes as quickly as they can. Are they succeeding? That's open to debate for sure, but they're trying. And that's what gives me hope that it is sustainable. So there's my arguments. Wow. So, okay, a lot of really interesting things to, to chew on. It's funny, Matthew, when you were talking about the uh, Jewish culture, where I thought you were going, was this idea that what's Jewish culture now? It's basically eating bagels and bagels and locks. That that's Jewish culture. And then that sort of question would then be, how sustainable is that? But it takes me in a slightly different place. And actually, Mike, I think this this might be something you you might know. I seem to remember some kibbutzim used to have a celebratory feast on Yom Kippur, mm -hmm. and uh, they often would have like pork at them. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. And I think that also links in to something. Very interesting. Well, we, it's part of what you were talking about earlier about creating new correct, Jewish identity. creating the new Jew. But perhaps, you know, we've, we've talked about what, what can maintain Judaism, both in Israel and outside. Observance. Once you take observance out, how, to what extent can, can Jewishness be, be passed on? And it's interesting because the major difference between those kibbutzim that did that feast and the uh, feast that Matthew described is one is happening in Israel, in a Jewish state. And stopped, by the way. And stopped. There's okay. nobody doing it anymore. And, and one is outside. And so then the question comes, and I, I kind of love to, to ask you this, let's put the observant Jews aside. Let's certainly put the Haredim aside. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, yeah. The question is for everyone else. Mm -hmm. Once you take out Jewish observance, how, again, in Israel, it's completely different. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely, this is an opinion, obviously there's, there's a future for 
secular Jews mm-hmm. in Israel. There's a future for traditional Jews in Israel. As Jews. As, as Jews, Jews. As exactly. self-identifying with exactly. Jews. Exactly. Yeah. As Israelis, as Shmuel Rosner might say. Mm-hmm. The question really comes, Jewish culture, which could be anything from I eat bagels and locks to I went to, I went to the Holocaust Museum in D.C. to I watched the film about Golda Meir, etc. How thick is that outside Israel that it, that it can actually survive? It might throw out, I don't know how many hundreds of years. I'd even throw out 75 years. To what extent can a non, what, to what extent is there a future for non-observant Jews who do not live and is non-observant Jews and non-observant Israelis mm-hmm. who live outside of Israel? Is the culture without the observance enough, strong enough to hold them in three generations' time? I'd just be interested in... We're, we're early enough in the modern world that we all come from families that moved from one place to another. And we watched the connected Jews, next generation, next generation, next generation. Just go through your family tree. You've watched the drifting away. Not of all, but of many. And, and we come from, I would argue, more connected. And look, look where we are on the tree. We're, we're very connected to our Jewish identity. And yet we, in each of our families, I'm imagining, have people who have drifted off the Jewish self-identity branch to one extent or another. Most of the Jewish world is nowhere near as connected. Most of the Jewish family trees don't have people on their branches as connected as we are. It's, it's just we all know this story of generational decline of Jewish identity. Right now in America, it was all over social media, uh, one of the leaders of the reform movement in the United States, which is a shrinking movement, as they all are. Not, it's not shrinking as quickly as conservative Amiel movement. Hirsch? Amiel Hirsch, yeah. The strongest growing denomination in the United States, which again is the only community of anywhere near the size of Israel. The strongest growing denomination of Jewish identity is I have no denomination. I, I don't exactly associate with anything for my Jewish identity. So, and Amiel Hirsch is arguing that exactly, and I, I don't remember his exact words, but it was if in reality or even in perception, the reform movement is seen as not supporting Israel. Overly universalist. Yeah. That it's oh, it's it's become more, you know, then that is a death knell of Jewish peoplehood and self-identity to our, essentially our tribe, isn't at the core of who we are, then we have failed. And, and I think, I think aside from the moral issues of loyalty and family and tribe and things like that, I think part of what makes his argument so strong to me is exactly this argument. Because if your universalism is more important than your sense of, of, of our uh, us-ness, then th- that is unsustainable, that you eventually will become part of the universal and lose your particular. You have to not sac- sacrifice your moral behavior, position, thinking. I think that's true. He's not saying you have to be this kind of person on Israeli politics. You can be anywhere you want on the spectrum of pro-Israel politics. But you can't turn anti-Israel and maintain a strong Jewish identity. And that's the fight he's having. Now, will he win or will he lose within the reform movement? I don't know. But that's the fight that the reform movement is having. I have reform rabbi friends who told me that right now the reform movement has a has a problem in that many of its communal leaders aren't Jewish because they accept you know, uh, mixed marriage families. And very often, uh, and it's so sweet, isn't it, that the non-Jewish spouse wants to get involved in this, in this synagogue and, and, you know, but it's, the question is how sustainable is it? And when you look at the data from the 2000 Council of Jewish Federation 
study, which found that the markers of the, the buzzword became continuity for a decade because they were like, how do we plug in, you know, to use Matt's model, how do we plug in these holes to make sure this ship stays seaworthy? 2010, the Council of Jewish Federation was unable to redo their study. They handed it over to Pew and paid for it. And the results were not not good. And the, the trends were all going maybe slower than some people uh, hoped. Uh, some people, some people feared we were like going off a cliff. It wasn't. It was a decline, but it wasn't, you know, that drastic. But it was. But it showed that the efforts of that decade had not yielded good results. And there was this, you know, all in, you know, in Jewish intellectual circles, all this buzz and Jewish leadership circles. What do we do? What do we do? In 2020, that level of decline has not uh, decreased. We're still in decline, and nobody even really talked about the 2020 Pew study. It didn't get. And he cachet because everyone's kind of bored of talking about continuity. Yes, people are still bailing the sinking ship. Yes, people are trying to plug the holes. But what they've what we've been doing so far isn't working. And so you may be slowing the sinking. And I'm arguing that may be the best you can do. And again, I recognize I'm, this is an undiplomatic, harsh truth. But one of the other things that Acharam always said was, I'd rather face a harsh truth than a comforting falsehood. And that is, I think, at the core of Zionism, is let's make the clear diagnosis and move towards the reality as quickly as we can, because the you know we could be diplomatic, but chava. So I, I just want to come back to what, what you're saying, your question, Kalev, in terms of observance, right? So I still don't know exactly what that word means. I know what someone who it describes himself as observant. Maybe it can is. be like the pornography thing. You don't know you don't know how to define it, but you know it when oh, you see it. <laughs> That's an interesting form of observance. But the I, I because that was the best possible way that term could that yeah. phrase could have been applied. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um but the observant meaning like if you say to somebody, are they religious, observant, whatever that means, right? That that implies a certain religious uh religious motivation or religious obligation, whatever you want to call it. But in terms of if you're talking about someone who is observant of Jewish culture, to come back to that again. Is that some? Is that somebody who does once a week go to the synagogue, or once a year goes on to a service, or they pay their JCC membership? I I don't know quite exactly what we're talking about when we talk about observance. I don't care about observance. Uh, you're well, argue, You guys are arguing about something that is irrelevant. I, I'm not arguing. I'm, I'm sorry. You, to clarify. You, you, what, what, okay. So, what, firstly, I would say I think the definition is less important. The question is how how sticky is your connection, and how long can it last? I'm surprised you're not talking. You think you think well, you think yeah. you one sec. Do you, do you think modern Orthodox and Haredim are gonna are gonna disappear in of three course. generations? Okay, so that is... they will transform because history isn't static. Were there modern Orthodox and Haredim three four hundred years ago? Not the way they are now. I mean, you can you can you can apply the terms if you like. By the way, I don't know that the pendulum isn't going to keep swinging. The Judaism that we practice is rabbinic Judaism, essentially created in the Talmudic era based on Second Temple Jewish practice and culture. What do, oh, will we eventually go back to a First Temple style, different level of observance? I have no idea what the practice, the future of Jewish practice is. I don't care. What I'm talking about is a stable millions who belong to a nation, who identify as part of that nation, that people, and care about care about the 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 idea of being part of an ongoing story it's a 3 4000 year old story care about it having a 3 4000 year future so i would say that's a little bit different obviously than what color was asking but also in terms yeah. of how you talk about peoplehood it's even more radical right, uh, but at what point yeah. do you stop being 
part of that people, right? I'm putting inverted commas for those who can't see. So Amiel Hirsch drew a line at Israel. For those who can't see. Okay, so that's Amiel Hirsch's line, right? The connection to Israel. Somebody else would say, once you stop paying your JCC membership and start going to synagogue once a year, you're no longer identifying as that Jewish people. Others would say, once you start describing yourself, I'm not Jewish anymore, I'm just a, a regular schmo from Minneapolis or wherever it is, then you've become that's it. To me, I don't care if you're living. If you're living. If you're if you're living with a non-Jewish person eating pork every day, but say, but I'm Jewish. That's that's Jewish. At least that. At least you say you're Jewish. That's on the decline. Okay, but said the So, th- th- so that gives me help to sort of understand your your reference yeah. terms for that. I, I don't know. Like it's 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 an interesting question. I, I still think that is, is a future. It's like saying how British are you if you don't drink tea. Yeah. I don't know. You're British. Like, do you say you're British? When people say to me, and I get this, a lot of people say to me, I'm not a very good Jew. I also say, I don't know what that means. I, yeah. I have said to people, I don't think you're right. I think you're a very good Jew. I think you may not be as observant as you think maybe you should be when you say a sentence like that. But you care about the people I'm talking about. I say to them, you care about what's right and wrong. You care about being Jewish. You care about helping people. You're creative. You're thoughtful. You're funny. You have so many good qualities of Jewish. Nobody's a perfect at Jewish life and culture. And you do what you do. And if you feel guilty that you're not doing more, so maybe you should do more. But don't call yourself a bad Jew. You're a wonderful Jewish person. I enjoy spending time with you. Well, that's that's exactly how I feel about it as well. I don't know what that means to be a good Jew. I know what it means to be good halachically observant Jew or bad halachically observant Right, it's not, the, it's not the Paul Rudd, uh, right, right. when uh, when when uh, when he was asked on Between Two Ferns, are you a practicing Jew? And he said, no, I don't practice. I've perfected it. <laughs> but I guess for, for me, because I have, because I keep coming back to thinking about how the, I, I live my life in Israel as a proud Jew. And when I go to this camp in the summer and I see kids who are struggling with their Exactly this question you're asking with this Jewish mm-hmm. identity. The camp I work at particularly has a 50%, about 50% of the kids come from no Hebrew school affiliation, no synagogue affiliation, no day school affiliation. So for them, this is really is their three weeks of the year of being part of a Jewish community, being part of Jewish culture, learning a little bit of Hebrew, experiencing some tefillah prayers to some degree or another, experiencing Shabbat to some way or another. And the fact that their parents are still sending them there and the fact that they still want to come gives me hope. So even if it's only three weeks out of, of the year, there's still something there which is pushing them to say, yep, I'm Jewish. And Yeah, hope is not a, uh, is not a good strategy. <laughs> I mean, I, I, it's, a, it's a lovely feeling and it's a very positive feeling. But strategically, how does that look? You know, if a general, you say, general, how are you going into this, you know, football coach, how are you going into this game? Well, I have a lot of hope. Coach, what's your plan to defeat this team? I have a lot of hope. Well, I would say the camp is almost the plan Right, that for, at least in this particular example, or for Gather DC, that organization yeah. I talked about at the beginning, their plan was to make Jewish culture relevant to the young people. In, and then the question becomes: Okay, at what point do we say the relevancy has overtaken authenticity? Because once it becomes no longer authentic, whatever that definition of authenticity is, then you say, Ah, so now it could be universal. And if it's universal, then you've got rid of your particularism, and then you've got rid of that. It's not sustainable. I don't believe that's sustainable. So and that's- I think I think pride is a good marker. If there's pride, then there's a possibility to pass it down. Historically, we see in the generations that doesn't pass down well. Right. If it's not a if the pride is a feeling is not accompanied by by sacrifice and practice, it doesn't sustain well. So I think. And, and I, by the way, I would even say that 
many Jews are facing embarrassment of Jewish identity, like on college campuses where they're being persecuted for it. And they made it. That's not great. But that's not even the real threat. The real threat is indifference, which is a growing factor of diaspora identity, which is, yeah, I know uh, my grandparents are Jewish. My parents are Jewish. I'm Jewish. What does that mean to you? I don't know. So we're, we're running out of time. Yeah. And I think there's a lot that we could still uh, discuss <laughs> yeah, feeling. Uh, but I just want to try and conceptualize something just to get your, your final comments. I think in the early decades of the 20th century, there were several models for how to solve, in inverted commas, the, in inverted commas, Jewish question, mm-hmm. Jewish problem. Mm-hmm. One of which was to continue to, to stay in Europe and, and create Jewish culture within Europe, kind of the, the Bund. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one was to be communist mm-hmm. and to gain kind of uh, emancipation through that. Another one was Zionism. Mm-hmm. And another one was to go to the Golden Medina, to, mm-hmm. to, to Western America. Western democracies. Exactly. And what the, uh, what the Shoah and, and, and the Second World War and then Stalin basically do to, to a couple of those is completely destroy them. Mm-hmm. And then what we're left with is be in Israel or live in a Western democracy that gives you more or less uh, full equal rights. And, and, and those are currently now the two successful in inverted comment models. Mike, is your argument basically that as time goes on, that model of the Western democracies will also collapse and therefore we will only be left with the Israel? And Matthew, is your argument that we can, you know, these two models will, for as long, again, as long as these countries stay Western democracies, those two models will continue to be relevant for Jews. You're assuming with that question, I think, that Israel is also going to remain a democracy, which is a topic for another no, podcast. No, he's not. Because even if Israel isn't a democracy, Jewish identity will still be secured here. There'll be a fight for justice and morality Nahon. and things I was like half, that. In a, in a, I was half joking, but yeah. yeah. That's a different episode, Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. A different but in, episode. But in the diaspora, in if those communities don't remain democracies, the sustainability of Jewish communal life there... But is I your argument agree. that even if they do... Yeah, that is my argument. Yeah. Do you remember a couple of years ago, there was this controversy where Seth Rogen, the comic actor, was being interviewed and he and he made some flippant joke about how, well, if they were, if they were moving to Israel to protect themselves, it's a pretty dumb idea. <laughs> you know, and everybody was like flipping out. And I always think it's strange when we flip out a, a, a comedian's off the cuff remark, because he, he's not a serious person who thought about this issue seriously. In other words, you, you can achara'am that statement and show that it's silly. But I, I think that's the level of thinking that most Jews have put into, like, why would I want to go to Israel? Don't doesn't Iran want to blow up Israel? Like you, that that is you have not taken a serious reckoning of the Jewish future and where the odds are. You haven't taken a broad approach. You may have flippantly dismissed Israel as a strategy, but if you do so, then I don't think you've seriously considered the question. In other words, anyone who's seriously in good faith looks at your track record, where all those were destroyed by the Holocaust, except for the Western democracy versus the Jewish state idea. And if you look at the sustainability, you look at the data, it's not so clear that there will be... Seth Rogen himself is not... I don't know that Seth Rogen's grandchildren will have strong Jewish identities. I, 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 I would argue that the most connected Jewish family in the United States can't anticipate grandchildren with strong Jewish identities. And the least connected to Jewish identity in Israel can assume that their grandchildren have Jewish identities. So what you're basically saying is that President Herzog should not have called Seth Rogan's mother to complain about what he said. As that, comedy, that's what I'm taking from comedy, this episode. that was gold. 
Anyway, thank you both. This was a really fascinating discussion. We could have gone on for a lot longer and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you, everyone. Yeah, bye-bye. Mike, if we would have had extra time in the episode about the, the future of the diaspora. I, I don't mind running long if we right. have to. Yeah. But, Do you mean two penalties in extra time? I mean two penalties in extra time, one badly taken by a Jew, then another badly taken by an Arab. That's what I mean. Um, but all Israeli. Exactly. You began by talking about Achad Amin observance, yeah. as in Shabbat. What kept the Jewish people was was the Shabbat. Yeah. So I, I get the argument that for those, and I, I also understand Matthew's thing about uh, what does observance mean? But yeah. putting that important thing aside, I get the argument over if you lose the observance, then we're stuck. But you're saying something even more radical, that even if you keep the observance, yeah. people outside of Israel are going to be stuck. Yeah. How does that work? Okay, so so let's take, again, we're using the United States. By the way, not for nothing, but when we were talking about this recently on a different you know, obviously not related to the podcast in a different context. One of our colleagues is from the former Soviet Union. Yes. And he said, you, you Jews from English-speaking communities think that there's a sustainable future in the diaspora. Almost every non-English-speaking community knows that we're doomed and we have to get to Israel. I thought that was very interesting. I'm, I'm sure that's hyperbole, but still worth noting that English-speaking Jews seem to have this sense of diaspora continuity. But to go... Well, again, Matthew and I are from, are from England. What? Yeah. That's never I don't know if you, I'm not sure yeah. if you... Not sure if you could tell oh, from right. that. Yeah. yeah, this is just a posh thing. I can't I, tell from the t-shirts and on. the baseball caps that you guys wear. <laughs> I'm wearing a Phillies hat today. Hi, Joe. That's my father-in-law again. Yeah. No, I think it is. Legit. I think it, it's. It's. I understand why a a a Jew from the former Soviet Union yeah. would say, based on the history, there is no future here. And I also understand why someone in America, which you, he's you, arguing in South America and France and other, you in arguably, Germany. you arguably could say that the American diaspora Jewish experience has been the... I know you mentioned Spain and Germany in a different context. Mm-hmm. Is, is 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 the most successful... The most successful model of diaspora Iraq. that we've ever had. I uh, don't think that's true at all. Okay. I just listed off ones that lasted much longer than American Jewry. Mm-hmm. Had- yeah, with, a, common denom- with a, a sad common denominator at the end. Oh, I don't know. Iraq? I mean, so much of our Jewish identity today came out of the Iraqi Jewish community, which lasted for 2,000 years. That's Ooh. pretty good. Ooh. I'm saying. Yeah, There's that's a- pretty good. The, the entire Babylonian Talmud defined Jewish life and culture for 1,500 years. That's from Iraq. There's an interest. And, and, and the, the Iraqi Jewish community came to a sad end in 1948, but that's not, they weren't exterminated. There's an interesting joke that uh, Edgar Kerat told once. He, where he, again, we're talking about the whole Shlilat Galut negating yeah. the diaspora. And he said, I had a classic Israeli education. Okay, what does classic Israeli education mean? Again, he's exaggerating. He said, when I left high school, I could tell you every place that there was a pogrom. <laughs> I never knew Kafka was Jewish. <laughs> and it kind of touches on like, what is, what is the story of diaspora that Israel... That's an amazing example because Kafka, it's not like... Uh... Like Mahler was Jewish. Kafka's Jewishness is is very t- tightly wound into his creativity. He's right. He's not. He's but not, diaspora he's gives not us two things to be Jewish. He's authentically diaspora gives us hundreds of years of flourishing, both within the Jewish community and outside. Yeah. But then it also often, more often than not, ends in pogroms. And and then no, the whole question is no, what? no. It ends in either dissolution or pogroms. Much better. It doesn't always end in pogroms. 
I don't think. Again, like the Italian Jewish community has gone from an important center of Jewish life to, you know, one of these nice communities that isn't as central or essentially important as it used to be. Herod the Great was educated in Rome. Well, so let, let, let's get back to the observance oh, thing, because so you're, arguing that, you're arguing that, that observance doesn't even help. In the end, it's all going in the same direction. Well, it has to do with Matt's point about, is there a point where you fall below a certain critical mass that the whole endeavor crashes? And I think that that is the case. Uh, I, I think that an enormous amount of Orthodoxy requires institutions to be sustained. Day schools, synagogues, restaurants, um, mikvaot. There's an enormous... Kosher food. Well, the kosher food is is capitalism, and those aren't necessarily sustained by communal funds. But the, the Federation and other national Jewish organizations put a lot of money into, you know, the Israel Day Parade or, or, or these things that, that maintain Jewish identity. If the Orthodox community, I would argue, the 10% of American Jewry thinks that they can be sustained without without being part of the framework of national American Jewry, I don't think they're right. I don't think they're right. And I don't think there's going to be enough flow back from Israel to sustain them, you know, from the Jewish agency. I'll give you just a single example, which is anecdotal, but I think it's illustrative. I'm not not saying this is the proof. I'm saying here's a good example. If you can't bring anecdotes in order to make a proof, then then what can you do? How How can you argue with that? You know, random anecdote. To I think. Prove well, your point. I think. I think we think that way. I think that is part of. I think it's good part of rhetoric because it's persuasive, even though we understand logically that it isn't. But I think it, it, it's illustrative. I think that has rhetorical value. So, Yeshiva University, my alma mater, has a men's college and a women's college, separate campuses. The women's college is called Stern College for Women, and it's named for. Oh, I'm not going to get his name wrong. That would be embarrassing. Abe Stern, I think, was his name, who was an immigrant to America who worked himself up from a push cart to an enormous fortune in, I think, pet food and pet products. Not- They've got to eat, Matthew. Pets have got to eat as well. It's a mitzvah to feed By the way, I think people, did, I don't think that was even a product category. I think he, he was one of the early pioneers of a business. That, I think people just give scraps to their animals and he, you know, or, or I don't know, took some, whatever they did. You've got a dog, Matthew. I have a dog. Well, it's thanks to... It's Mr. thanks Stern. to Mr. Stern. Thank yeah, you, exactly. Mr. Stern. I think that's an early 20th century product. You know, uh, part it came a little bit later in the Industrial Revolution that now we factories produce pet food. Not the point. He decided as not somebody who was an observant Jew, but he thought Jewish continuity in the Jewish future. And he invested in this idea of, of educating young Jewish women to have strong, independent Jewish identities, well-educated, being able to go out into the world. And he and Stern College for Women is named for him. That's a beautiful thing. The business school at New York University is the Stern School of Business. That's his grandson, who I believe went to NYU, who's in you know obviously still in charge of the family fortune, but wanted to make stronger businessmen for people who attend New York University. Similarly philanthropical, but not connected to a Jewish future. Uh, that's the grandson of the guy whose name is on Stern College for Women. I think that's illustrative of the future of Jewish funding. Now, there is still Federation, Amer- you know, all of Matt's examples in the when we were talking in the episode about how, you know, these are thriving communities. They are. They are still, at the moment, they are thriving. Uh, the ship is still in the water. It's still above water, and people are still on it. Uh, and they, the band is playing. But... Uh, uh, are we rearranging the deck chairs? That's I mean, uh, the band still playing is probably not such a great example, <laughs> bearing in mind the band continued yeah. playing yeah. as they were going down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
The rearranging deck well, chairs is a... Yeah, well, it, it's, you know, it's not the part where the Titanic cracked in half yet and it totally went vertical. Like, we're not up to that. It's still it's still taking on water and you could get to the lifeboats. And uh, I don't know, they're playing shuffleboard. Is that better? I don't know what... How how tortured do we want to make this, this poor, poor metaphor? But I don't think the 10% community is, sustainable, is a sustainable critical mass for a meaningful future. By the way, if 300 years from now, there's a few thousand Jews living in whatever the equivalent of future shtetlach would be. I mean, keep in mind, when we talk about the future, we're talking about the number of variables of what change means in a moment in history where the pace of change is faster than we can deal with. And so you could argue, well, but in a, in a shrinking globe, it might be easier to have adjunct communities. I, I don't know if there is or isn't. But I, I don't believe that even if the te that 10% is sustainable and they become 80% or 90% because the rest of the Jewish world disappears around them. And so, you know, that, what, what, what are they now? They're 10% of 6 million. Let's say it's not 6 million Jews, but let's say it was 6 million. What's 10% of 6 million? 600,000. So let's say the 600,000 is, is maintained. I don't know that you can maintain a community of that with that many needs with 600,000 people in. Who's... Who's paying for the the tuition scholarships? Who's paying for the scholarships? Who's paying for the building programs? Who's paying for, I don't know. The Look, Israeli taxpayer, according to one of our episodes. That's just in Israel. That's, <laughs> that's not in Israel. Israel. <laughs> not in America. I was, I was joking. Look at the architecture of Jewish life in America. Conservative and reform buildings are built in the 70s when they had this growth moment. They don't. You don't have a tremendous amount of new building. You do have in the Orthodox world still a certain amount of new building, but I, I don't know how sustainable that is without the 90% of the, the let's say, 50-60% of the other 90% that are committed to that 10% survival and are sustaining that 10%. I'm just thinking, I mean, we should, we should probably bring this to an end, but I'm thinking what's ironic is that this also links in to the other side of the coin to this is a discussion that I know the two of you had about Israel kind of on, on an existential, you know, is it all about to collapse? And what I think is interesting is, is again, what we argue is not necessarily the personal opinion, but right. but you were extremely positive yeah. about <laughs> that, and Matthew was negative. Right. And here we've got um, you extremely pessimistic yeah. about the chances of the diaspora, and Matthew more positive. So... Um, I would argue that within Zionism is diaspora pessimism and Israel optimism. I think that's 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 core to the belief system. It doesn't make it right, but it makes it identifiably Zionist. Yeah, or, or faith, emuna, faith, and and absence of faith. Well, as a religious person myself, there is an element of religious. I, I find it. I, I do believe that the that the prophets in the Bible are onto something. Whatever that mechanism is, I don't know. But they're 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 seeing. But even if I didn't, Achad Am and Herzl, you know, Ben Gurion's famous quip: uh, "To be a realist in Israel, you have to believe in miracles." Like there is an element of political national faith in the patriotism that is Zionism, even if it's not religious. That's a beautiful way to end the conversation. Yeah. Buy, I have to buy by this? No, not in a bonus episode. Not in a we bonus. don't buy by bonus bye bye. <laughs> You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massa Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massa fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel and all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood 
to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.